The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced 
that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of God for the people of God. Just wondering when Dusty's going to pray for my age group. Feeling a little, feeling a little left out around here. Guess you guys don't care about people in their 20s in this church. I mean, hey, we're studying uh, the life and teachings of Jesus as recorded in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And so uh, welcome. If you're newer and just joining us, um, I'd love to give you a little copy of this scripture study guide. It just has the text of the gospel of John. So uh, come see me afterward if you'd like one of those and I can give you one. Uh, I've been looking forward to this particular text for a while. When we built the preaching calendar for this fall, I assigned myself this text because I get to do that. Uh, and because I wanted to preach this particular text, because in this, in this little spot in John chapter 8, we encounter one of the most famous sayings of Jesus, one of the ones that I think um, outside of the church and outside of Christianity, people are familiar with this statement. My wife, Lee, and I spent the first four years of our married life in Austin, Texas, where we served in campus ministry at the University of Texas. One of the most iconic landmarks there is the University of Texas Tower, which rises 307 feet in the air, kind of defines the skyline of downtown Austin. And etched in marble on the face of this structure are the words of John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free or make you free. You can see it there on the facade of the building. Notice there's no attribution. It doesn't say these are the words of Jesus or of John. It just assumes that you as the reader know where these are from. And so I used to have conversations with students right underneath this building. I'd be like, hey, do you know where that phrase came from? And people would venture guesses like Aristotle, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, any, any inspirational figure who might have said something like this. And it gave me the chance to say, no, actually, it was Jesus who said these words in the Gospel of John. And what's interesting is the, the fact that that's etched in this building at a major public university speaks to the power of these ideals, the ideal of truth and the idea that truth can make us free. The connection between truth and freedom is really powerful and sort of animating to us as human beings. And it leads us to ask the question, what is truth? And how can truth set us free? So those are the questions we want to think about this morning. But it's important that we take not just that phrase, but that we take it in the larger context in which Jesus is speaking. Notice the audience to whom Jesus is speaking when he makes this famous statement. In verse 31, we read, he's speaking to the Jews who had believed in him or who had believed him. So He's talking to people who have in some meaningful way believed what he's been saying. But we've seen throughout the Gospel of John this repetition of the theme of fickle faith. John has made it clear to us there are people who are intrigued by Jesus and who believe in him really because of his celebrity. They're more fans than they are followers. And Jesus is always trying to challenge these people with what it actually means 
to believe his words and to follow him. He consistently throughout the Gospel of John says to these people who are kind of intrigued by his persona, kind of captivated by his celebrity, he consistently says to them, hey, understand what it means to be my disciple. And that's what he's doing here in verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 8. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus is never interested in multiplying numbers of converts if they are not genuine believers. And therefore, he insists on forcing would-be disciples to count the cost. I want you to think about what good news this is. Jesus is not out for the numbers. He's not counting likes and followers. He's not just into building a platform. Jesus doesn't just want your emotional conversion in a moment of interest. He wants you to make a real intelligent and thoughtful decision to be his follower. He wants you to count the cost. He wants you to be his disciple. And and that's been the thing, because Jesus cares so deeply about that, that's been one of the animating values of Quorumdale Church since the very beginning. We're not really interested in converts. We're interested in making disciples. We want to help you become a disciple of Jesus. We want you to actually count the cost of what it means to be his follower. I want you to consider carefully his teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we want you to make a, a whole soul decision to become his disciple. Something we care about. And that's why we realize, why you hear us say up here every week, hey, we're glad you're here on a Sunday morning, but Sunday morning is just the beginning of what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus. Because to become his disciple, to understand how the gospel shapes and influences every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our character, it takes real life-on-life fellowship. It takes people knowing us and working the gospel down into the fabric of our character. Well, look what Jesus says about being his disciple in verse 31. He says this, If you abide in my word, or remain in my word, or persist in my word. You are truly my disciples. In other words, the mark of discipleship is perseverance. Not just hearing Jesus' word and being intrigued for a little while, but abiding in it, remaining in it, staking our lives, building our lives on what Jesus says. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this freedom Jesus offers is not one dramatic instant of deliverance. That's what we like to think about because that is kind of cool to us in America. But what's in view here is a life built on the message of Jesus, which opens up a greater and greater understanding of the truth, which leads us into a deeper and deeper kind of freedom. It's progressive, not instantaneous. Jesus is saying, if you abide in my word, if you take these things in, remain in them, dwell in them, let them dwell in you, then you will be my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And John shows us the challenge about this promise Jesus makes, that the truth will set you free. The challenge of that is that truth is not always welcomed easily. We're not always looking to receive more truth. We don't always want people to tell us the truth. Sometimes I want you to lie to me because it just feels better, right? 
And what happens is when, when the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus says and what the world is really like, when that truth comes into our lives, sometimes it comes in conflict with the ways we already see the world, with our existing assumptions about reality, with the patterns we've built our lives around. Sometimes it has to unsettle us before it can comfort us. And that's what's happening in this text. Jesus is speaking truth. He's speaking it rather plainly. And he's speaking it to people who need to have his truth come in conflict with their existing assumptions and patterns of being. So John shows us here in this section of chapter 8 four truths that can set us free. The truth of your resistance, the truth of your confusion, the truth of your search for identity, and the truth of who Jesus is. Let's look at each one in turn. First of all, the truth of your resistance. Most of us want to think that when it comes to religion, we are neutral, unbiased people, right? We're willing to be convinced if there's something we should be convinced about. Just give us the facts, hand us the data, let us weigh them and make an informed decision. But this dialogue shows us we are not, in fact, neutral and unbiased people. When Jesus says these amazing words, these words that are so inspiring that architects inscribe them on buildings as a statement of what truth is about. When Jesus says to this audience, hey, you're going to know the truth and the truth will set you free. They do not respond with truth, freedom. Yes, Jesus, we've been seeking these things all our lives. Please tell us more about how we can know the truth and how it can set us free. Instead, they respond with dismissal, questioning, and even outright hostility. Quite simply, what we see in this passage repeatedly is Jesus speaks words, and then his hearers resist those words. The whole passage is set up as a dialogue where Jesus speaks, and then his hearers speak. And Jesus says things, and then his hearers respond. And their responses are not response of belief and conviction, but rather responses of challenge and resistance. John is showing us something important about the human soul, and that is that the human soul is not neutral. We have imbibed this sort of Western Enlightenment way of thinking that goes back to philosophers like John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And what these philosophers taught us is that every human being is a blank slate. We come into the world totally innocent, totally uh, ready to be formed. And what messes us up, what's ruined your life is your education and your family system and all the people who have tried to enculturate you in ways that are really broken. That's what's wrong with you. And if we could just fix that by giving you better education or different influences, then you'd be fine. Rousseau said it this way, man is born free, but he is everywhere in chains. Jesus says something quite different from that in this passage. He says to his hearers repeatedly, hey, you're resistant. My word finds no place in you. Listen, verse 37, my word finds no place in you. In verse 43, you cannot understand what I say because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 47, you do not hear my words because you are not of God. Jesus is imparting over and over again in this dialogue the reality that human beings have a fundamental resistance to the Word of God. Listen to Leslie Newbegin. He says it this way, The words of Jesus, His audible speech in one of the languages of the world, 
are part of the world. His hearers hear them. But they can only hear them as part of this world. In that context, they are intolerable and must be silenced. The word which Jesus himself is requires the abandonment of a center in the human ego. Without this, belief is simply an impossibility. It is not that the man in the world has the free option to believe or not to believe. The being of these unbelievers is constituted by the will to unbelief. Think about that phrase, the will to unbelief. That's our problem. Our problem is we are willfully resistant to the Word of God. And Jesus wants his hearers to understand, hey, one of the truths you need to understand in order to be set free is that you're not a neutral, unbiased observer listening to my words. You don't want to hear my words. In fact, you can't receive them. There's a beautiful helplessness in the work of communicating the words of Jesus, the gospel message. And the the beautiful helplessness is this. Unless the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, overcomes your resistance and my resistance to the Word of God, we simply aren't going to believe. There's no human being on earth that if they just had a little more information, would believe in Jesus. The problem is we are willfully unbelieving. We cannot bear to hear Jesus' word. And so Jesus wants, first of all, to just offer up to you the truth that's going to set you free is the truth of your resistance. You've got to reckon with that. You've got to embrace your need for mercy and grace and a softening of your will and heart and disposition. So here's the question this, this text forces each of us to ask. Where are you resistant to the word of God? What shape does your resistance take? The truth of our resistance is why the posture of surrender and humility is the only way to come to Jesus. We do not come to Jesus as the decision makers, doing a cost-benefit analysis of following him. Rather, we come to him as needy sinners who, who need the resistance of our own souls to be overcome. Jesus begins by being honest about the truth of our resistance. Second, he reminds us of the truth of our confusion. You you notice the contrast in this passage between truth and lies. Jesus repeatedly says, I'm bringing you the truth. My words are truth. You can know the truth and be set free. But then he speaks frequently of lies and of Satan, the father of lies. Have you ever known a compulsive liar? I hope not, but some of you probably have. Unfortunately, I've been around people like that twice in my life. There are two individuals that I have had the unfortunate privilege of being near to who have been compulsive liars, and the stories get really dramatic and ugly. I'll tell you one of them. Uh, One of my friends in college, uh, a guy I knew for a couple of years before I discovered that everything he had told me about his life was totally made up, this was a roommate, person I knew very well. I assumed I knew reality about his life, his story, his background, his family, his experiences. Actually, all of that was made up. And it all came crashing down in one dramatic moment when he called one morning and said, hey, can I get a ride to class? And I said, what happened to your car? He said, it got stolen. I was like, well, 
man, bummer. Yeah, I'll come give you a ride. So me and some friends helped give him rides around town for a couple days. And I, we were all provoked by, how, how could someone just steal your car? Well, two days later, I was driving through the city of Norman, Oklahoma, where we both lived, when I saw his car pass me going the opposite direction. And so, outraged and infuriated by the injustice of that, I turned my car around, I chased that car down and forced it off the road, I jumped out and started yelling at the person driving, get out of the car, there's a stolen vehicle. It was like a 17-year-old girl. She was weeping and probably traumatized to this day by what had happened. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Meanwhile, my friend Keith, who was riding with me, was calling the police. And so after we'd made the phone call to the police and after this girl had gotten out of the car and was sitting on the curb sobbing, trying to figure out what was going on, I called my friend. I said, hey, good news. We found your stolen car. The police are on the way We're here right now. We're going to get it all sorted out. And there was a long pause on the other end of the phone. After which my friend said, you should probably come over so I can let you in on a few things. Turns out the car had not been stolen. He had sold it to pay off some debt. Turns out that wasn't the only story that he had told. But in fact, everything we knew about this person was entirely fabricated. I got to the place where I was like, I don't even know who this person is because literally everything he's told me about his world, his life, his background, his experiences is entirely made up. If you've ever interacted with a person like that, you know that when you hear enough lies, they start to sound true. And you get lost in this web of confusion where you're not sure like what's true and what's false. When this passage, Jesus is telling you that actually all of life is a battle between the truth and the lie. Jesus tells you the truth that will set you free, but that's not the only thing on offer. There's also a devil, a spiritual enemy who lies to you. Look at verse 44 of John chapter 8. Jesus says this to his hearers, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's a real spiritual enemy who is the father of lies. And I know anytime we encounter language of the devil as enlightened, Western, rationalistic people, we're like, well, I mean, that kind of sounds a little superstitious. But I want you to think about the nuanced view of evil that the Bible and the Apostle John is putting forward here. Think about this. What makes us distinct and unique as human beings is that we are meaning makers. We are storytellers. There is no other species in the world that hangs art on the walls. Why do we do that? Because we're making meaning of our space. We're giving it a certain shape. We're interpreting our reality. The three-legged dog that lives in my neighborhood does not spend any time wondering why he only has three legs, why this particular suffering has come into his life. He's just a dog, and he does dog things. But every human being who experiences suffering asks questions like, why is this happening? Where is God in this? What does this mean? We are meaning makers, and Jesus claims that he speaks the truth, and therefore that he can assign the proper meaning 
to our lives and to the world and to the things that happen to us. But there is another being who also seeks to assign meaning to our lives, and he does so by twisting the truth, by speaking lies. This is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 3. It's on the slide here. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent did not attack Eve. He did not assault Eve. He did not force Eve to any behavior. You know what he did? He gave her an interpretation of reality. He lied to her. Told her something that caused her to doubt. Is God really out for my good? Can I really trust what God has said? He suggested an interpretation of reality that was false, yet plausible. And likewise, Jesus says, the battle of your life and mine is always the battle between truth and lie. There is a real spiritual enemy who seeks to lie to you and to bring confusion into your life. And the reality is you're going to have to decide who's going to, whose interpretation of reality will you trust? Jesus' interpretation of reality? Or yours, the world's, the culture around you's, ultimately the devil's? So ask yourself this question. What meaning have you assigned to the events in your life? What stories have you told yourself about why certain things have happened? There's always two things that happen in our lives. There are the events themselves, and then there are the interpretations we give to those events. The events are what they are. You can't change the events that happen. The power is in the interpretation that we give them, the lies that we believe about them, or the truth that we believe about them. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Jesus says, you need to understand the truth of your resistance. You also need to understand the truth of your confusion, that, that your life is a battleground for truth versus lie. Will Jesus' word win the day, or will another word win the day? That brings us to the third point, the truth of your search for identity. This passage is this back and forth, kind of an adversarial back and forth in conversation between Jesus and his hearers. And perhaps you noticed that in this dialogue, the name Abraham appears 11 times. Jesus' listeners say, we are offspring of Abraham, verse 33. Abraham is our father, verse 39. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Verse 53. This is their existing way of identifying themselves in the world. All of us are searching for identity. They have located their identity in their descent from Abraham. When Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he's acknowledging that one of the things we need to be set free from is our existing source of identity. To say it another way, discipleship to Jesus 
means identification with Jesus. It means leaving behind all the other sources of identity that we have, making a radical break with all the other ways we define ourselves, and being identified with Jesus and with his people. Listen to how Oliver O'Donovan speaks about this consistent theme, not only in the Gospel of John, but the other Gospels as well. He writes, the community gathering about Jesus unsettles the established centers of community. It does not overthrow them, but it disquiets them and attracts their hostility. Freedom, then, is not conceived primarily as an assertion of individualism. It is a social reality, a new disposition of society around its supreme Lord, which sets it loose from its traditional lords. Just stop there for a minute and think about that. What he's saying is, when we hear the word freedom, you know what we think? Individualism. Me getting to do whatever I want to do. O'Donovan is saying, no, no, freedom in the Bible is a social reality. It's being unsettled from all the other lords in our lives and organizing ourselves as a society around the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to write, the implication of this new social reality is that the individual can no longer simply be carried within the social setting to which she or he was born. She must give herself to the service of the Lord in defiance, if need be, of the old lords and societies that claim her. She emerges in differentiation from her family, tribe, and nation, making decisions of discipleship which were not given her from within them. Many of you who have become Jesus' disciples have experienced this exact thing. You've identified yourself with Jesus and with his people. You've said, I belong to him. I'm a Christian. This is who I'm going to be about. This is the thing that's going to define me. And suddenly, your existing societies, families, friends, not so sure what they feel about that. They recognize that in a certain way, they've been displaced. There's a new allegiance that's present for you. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, Anyone who does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children cannot be my disciple. The point is not hate your family. The point is when you come to Jesus, you come into a new family. And you sit looser to all the existing relationships that you have. Family, tribe, kin, subculture, vocation, all the things that you define yourself by now sit looser in your life because you have a new primary identity. So here's the question that this makes us ask. What sources of identity are you clinging to? What other ways do you define yourself? What other sources of identity and significance are you still hanging on to? Jesus invites you to come and be his disciple. But in order to do so, You've got to make a break with all other sources of identity. Not in a way that obliterates them, but in a way that makes them all secondary. Who are you now? Well, you're a Christian. You may also be a son or daughter, a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, a friend. You may also be a lawyer, a doctor, 
an artist, a stay-at-home mom. There's all kinds of other things that might be part of your identity. But all of them are secondary. The people in this text cannot get themselves out of a way of thinking that identifies themselves as descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is trying to get them to see, hey, don't you see, all of that was pointing to me anyway. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We've seen the truth of your resistance, the truth of your confusion, the truth of your search for identity, and that brings us finally to the truth of who Jesus is. Why is Jesus speaking these words, these direct and challenging words about our resistance? Why is he saying, you don't want to hear my word? Why is he reminding us that we live in a world of confusion where truth and lie compete with each other for our allegiance? Why is he reminding us of our search for identity, of all the places we tend to want to find our significance? Because ultimately, he wants us to understand the truth of who he is. Look at verse 51. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is one of the most powerful and profound statements Jesus makes in all of the Gospel of John. This moment is full of significance. And here's why. Because back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, Moses asked God, Exodus 3.13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God had revealed himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the fathers. Moses says, hey, let's say I come to the people. I say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. And they ask, what is your name? What do you want me to say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is notoriously one of the most challenging verses in the Bible to, to translate in the Hebrew language because what God is saying is basically, I am the one who is. Everything you associate with the concept of being, whatever falls in the verb is to you, that's who I am. The word Yahweh, which was the, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament, is derived from this verb. And in Greek, when the, when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, 
There's two words here, ego, a me. That's a Greek way of saying I am. That's exactly what Jesus says right here in John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. He knows and his hearers know that he's using the exact words that God used to refer to himself in Exodus 3.14. Jesus is saying that God, the one who identifies himself with what it means to be, that's who I am. No wonder that at this moment they pick up stones to throw at him. They recognize that he's claiming to be God. He's claiming equality with the divine. And in their minds, that is blasphemy. And there's no way it could possibly be anything else. Jesus is claiming to be the one who is. The one who has his own existence within himself. Who's not dependent on anyone else but who has the entire power of existence and being within himself. And friends, don't you see, this is the truth that can set us free. This is the truth that can overcome our resistance and deliver us from our confusion and give to us a new identity. What sets us free, the truth that really sets us free is not just knowing the words that Jesus has said, but knowing Jesus as the word. Remember how John introduced Jesus in John chapter 1. The Word that was in the beginning with God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not just knowing the words Jesus has spoken. It's knowing Jesus to be the Word, the one God who's worthy of our worship and our adoration and our service. This is what sets us free from every other identity from all of our confusion, from all of our uncertainty. It's what brings us into a life of freedom and truth and meaning. Because only when we worship Jesus as God can we experience the freedom that he brings us. It's not an accident that in every foreign language you ever learn, what's one of the first verbs you learn? The verb for M is, R was, B being been, right? All the ways of saying how to be. That's the most foundational aspect of language. When a child starts speaking, after they learn little babbles like mama and dada, they start saying things like, I am hungry, or I'm tired, or I'm thirsty, right? The first thing we learn how to express is, I am something. Jesus says, when you recognize that before Abraham was, I am, that's the key to being set free. That's what brings freedom and joy and life and purpose to your life is when you start living to worship me, when you see who I am and what I've brought to your life, when you reject all the lies that make meaning for you and you embrace the truth of who I am and what I've come to do. That's what can set you free. Jesus says to you this morning, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth, as John has reported it, and as Jesus said it, is that you and I are resistant to Jesus' words. We are confused about reality because of the lies we've believed, but Jesus has come to set captives free. And he invites us to come to him, to leave behind all of our other sources of identity and be identified with him and with his people, and to bow to him in worship as the great I am. And when we do, it brings us the deepest kind of joy 
and the freedom and life. Let's come to him in worship now together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for these powerful words that we can know the truth and the truth can set us free. So we embrace the truth of this passage this morning, the truth that we are resistant to you. The truth that we are confused and have believed lies, that there is an enemy who seeks to speak lies to us and give us an alternate understanding of reality. Thank you that you have come to set captives free. That you invite us to come to you and be identified with you. So this morning we ask that we would embrace more deeply the truth of who you are and what you've done. Father, in the places in our souls where we're prone to believe lies, come and replace them with your truth. In the places in our lives where we're prone to find identity elsewhere, come and ground us in identity in you. Help us leave behind all of the other things by which we name ourselves. And help us rest this morning in the glorious truth of sharing your name, that we belong to you. Would you make us your disciples? Let us not just be fans. Let us be your followers who come to you, who believe in you, who trust you, who are identified by you, and who see the world through the truth that you bring. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.